Welcome to the All Y'all Podcast. I'm Sarah Abair. And I'm Chris J. Sarah and I produce All Y'all independently from our home in Shreveport, Louisiana. This is the fifth episode in a five-part series exploring the cultural impact of the Louisiana Hayride, a country music showcase that was broadcast live from KWKH in Shreveport from 1948 until 1960. The Hayride was a turning point in the careers of artists like Elvis Presley, Hank Williams, Johnny Horton, and too many others to name. For this series, we've been lucky enough to partner with Louisiana Public Broadcasting. Previous episodes have featured conversations with Professor of Music, Dr. Tracy Laird, newspaper publisher, Robert Gentry, Hayride archivist, Joey Kent, and country music superstar, Kix Brooks. For this episode, we spoke with Alton Warwick, who spent decades working alongside his late wife and business partner, Maggie Warwick, to revive the Louisiana Hayride in Shreveport. When we sat down to record this interview, it had only been a few months since Maggie's passing. For her entire life, Alton had been her greatest supporter, advocate, and fan. So it makes sense that much of the conversation you're about to hear centers on Maggie. Sometimes Chris and I go into an interview expecting it to be one thing, but it turns out to be an entirely different thing. We expected to have a conversation with Alton about the country music business, but what we wound up hearing was a really beautiful love story. Here's that story, which began and ended with Alton reflecting on his wife. That's right. We, uh, my wife was, uh, Margaret, was the uh, leading person having been on the hayride itself, so we'll hopefully we'll carry on in some fashion, some fashion without her being here, but it'd be not the same. She was um, uh, an absolute civic leader in Shreveport, Louisiana, and around the country. She was honored with awards for her work in New Orleans and elsewhere. Before we get into talking about the Louisiana hayride, can we just talk a little bit about your late wife, uh, Margaret, and, and how she and you, you both saved, I feel like I remember that you saved Shreveport Municipal Auditorium from the wrecking ball at one point. Uh, yes, that's one thing I do know about, because they say I was there. <laughs> but uh, uh, as I, I remember it vividly, uh, the Tourist Bureau had asked us to, or her particularly, to do a tour for some guests from England that wanted to, of course, see the auditorium where Elvis and Hank and all those guys were. So it was a Saturday, as I remember vividly, it was raining pouring down rain, and so as we progressed upstairs to show them the upstairs, they had buckets catching the water coming through the roof, and so she asked uh, the superintendent of the building, said, why don't the city patch this roof? And he says, uh, we're not going to do that. We're going to tear this building down. And uh, so she said uh, to her, after we left, I'm going to see if that does not happen. So through my work at ARCLA, I happened to know uh, a lot of the representatives and state representatives. And so she asked me if I would uh, call the meeting of those key guys to see if they could uh, do something to save that building uh, since the city had, uh, in effect, uh, turned its back on it. So did, and uh, several of those guys stepped forward, uh, Hoppy Hopkins, who is now deceased, Billy Montgomery, Foster Campbell. They went down to the... Uh, Baton Rouge capital and uh, pleaded the cause, were uh, successful in that quest, and the result of, we got $2 million to begin the restoration of that building. Uh, That building has seven roofs on it, so the 
the uh, repairing the roofs took five hundred thousand uh, dollars. However, once that was done, then uh, then people started saying, "Well, maybe we should look into raising some money locally, since all the seed money came not a dime came from the city of Shreveport, all came from the state of Louisiana." So. Uh, the mayors at that time and some other people formed a committee and my wife was heading it up, Friends of the Auditorium. And from that effort, uh, it grew and uh, more funds were raised. And the result of it is now a functioning building that's on the historic register. And uh, I think everyone can be proud of that it was not destroyed. Also designated a National Historic Landmark for, for the role that it played in the birth of, uh, well, so many yeah. American musics. Well, the building was more than just the hayride because I was growing up there. I used to see wrestling every you know, Wednesday and Friday and the, and the ice capades uh, the, were there, the whole Harlem Globetrotters. Uh, so that was a social building of its time uh, for everything. There was no other building in Shreveport that uh, could hold those type of events. So it was more than the hayride. And it was, uh, hayride was a large part of it, but it was a building that should have been preserved. Uh, fact. The morgue was in that building. I got my first polio shot in that building. The health department was there. So it had a long and successful history that's very uh, ornate and uh, needed to be preserved regardless of the hayride. I think it's particularly beautiful and poetic that a performer from the Louisiana Hayride then years later helped save it from the wrecking ball because Margaret, uh, your, your late wife, was not only an activist and a businesswoman, but she was a performer alongside all the big names on the Louisiana Hayride. Now, this is dating back to when she was 15 years old. She came in second place in a talent contest, I remember. Or I remember reading. That may be wrong. Nope. But uh, then she got invited onto the Hayride stage, I think, when she was only like 16 years old. She was, she was from Leveland, Texas, West Texas. She was the fifth generation of West Texas. So uh, the Hayride would do, Johnny Horton and Tillman Franks would do sort of like uh, talent shows, uh, out in the area around the, the, Louisiana. And so they, they held one in, um, out in her, her neck of the woods in Leveland. So she uh, joined that, uh, her band in high school was uh, Margaret Lewis and the Thunderbolts. They invited her to, and her to be guests on the Hayride anyway. So that one act of uh, Johnny Harden and Tillman having that show changed her life because she moved to Shreveport following that was on the hayride, uh, and when the hayride closed, she was, uh, her and my, my uh, cousin, uh, Myra, moved to Nashville and became uh, actively involved in the uh, music business in Nashville. So that was the uh, turning point of, uh, of her life. And before we move on, I want to put a, a mention in for listeners. If you've never heard Mag Margaret Lewis's music, a lot of us in Shreveport think of her as, as, um, as Maggie Warwick, and that was her name, but it, look up Margaret Lewis's music, especially if you like rockabilly, because holy smokes, there are some barn burners. She recorded some great tunes. Yeah, the uh, strangers, my, uh, my cousin Myra, actually, they were two women recording in the late 50s and early 60s, R&B, gospel, uh, rockabilly, Black artists, Ram had integrated musicians in that studio. Ram was Myra's record label. Myra's uh, uh, record label. And uh, from those recordings, um, they were, 
they, they moved to Nashville after the Hayride closed and closed the record store down. However, in the late 80s or early 80s, uh, got a call from a guy from, I tell by his accent, from England. And uh, he wanted to know if I had, we had, Myra had died by that time. And we had those old recordings that she had worked so hard and Myra and Margaret did too. And uh, he was looking for um, those odors of those tapes. And I said, well, we do have them. He said, well, you wouldn't happen to know where Margaret Lewis is, would you? I said, yeah, she's in there cooking supper. <laughs> would you like to talk to her? <laughs> so from that conversation, uh, Ray Topping with Ace Records in London came to Shreveport. And we had a lot of, Myra and Margaret did, had a lot of those recordings that never saw the light of day because single women in those days, it was tough to borrow money, especially if you were in the music business. So a lot of those great recordings never got released on record. And from that visit, uh, Ace Records put out five of those CDs. A lot of those had never been uh, released before. Put out a whole album on Margaret called Lonesome Bluebird. And, uh, and they're tremendous. If you're listening and you've never heard these records, if you're interested in Louisiana music or Shreveport music, please go out and find those releases. I think mostly from the early 2000s or somewhere in there yeah. of Margaret yeah. Lewis's records. They are great. In fact, uh, Ace just called me up. Uh, about a month ago when they wanted to update some of that, wanted to put out another CD on Margaret's for some of the recordings that they did not include in that. So they'll be coming out in a month or so. That's so cool. I, you mentioned earlier, you know, they were both single women working in the music industry. I can only imagine how hard that was. There were very few, especially Myra, who was a talented engineer a great blues guitar player, a songwriter. And uh, so you had two women that uh, with no, I had just got out of tech and I, I had gone to work for Arkansas, so I wasn't exactly bringing home a load of money. So the, the budget was tight. One thing I wanted to ask you is, do you remember the first time that you met Margaret? Do you remember the first time you saw her? Yes, I do. Johnny <laughs> uh, Harden, as I was saying, had brought Margaret down to meet Myra. He said, I, uh, she toured with Johnny uh, a while, and he said, I think a lady here in town could, uh, I think y'all could uh, work together and uh, be beneficial. So he brought her out to, to the record shop, and uh, and they were, uh, they did hit it off, you know, both had like styles and everything. So uh, I was living with, uh, in fact, Myra, Myra's uh, mother, and also. Uh, obviously, I got to meet Margaret, and so I was, being the fast worker that I am, 17 years later, we got married, so <laughs> that shows you what, uh, but anyway, uh, they moved off to Nashville, but I still kept close contact with her because uh, uh, her mother, Myra's mother, I, uh, I lived with them, I took care of them, and so we'd go up there to visit, and uh, I did all their income taxes and all their book work, so... We kept in close contact, and uh, suddenly one of those times that Myra got sick, we were had the equation to spend more time together, and boom, <laughs> you know, there it happened right. finally. <laughs> uh, and I, everybody said, oh, you're going to have a hard time adjusting, you know, at your age. Uh, wasn't in the adjustment at all. So, anyway, that's my story. Well, it's fascinating to me that someone um, who performed on the Hayride 
took this uh, long route, or not, I mean, it took a route around the bend and ended up owning it. Can you tell me how the hayride came into y'all's, or to your life? Um, it sounds like you were working on becoming a professional. You know what I mean? It, uh, yeah. Uh, we had no intention of getting involved in the hayride when she came back. We were uh, doing other things. and uh, When would this have been, Alton? Would it have been? Uh, this was 19, I, we got married in 1981. So the first occasion that we had to revisit the hayride was when the LPB and, uh, was doing the Cradle of the Stars beginning. So Margaret said, I need to talk to her because, you know. So we did. We met uh, with Beth and uh, Rick Smith at that time. So we worked on that event. And uh, so from that association I think a few years had passed and the tourist bureau uh, knew Margaret had was on the hayride from that thing said ask her if she, if she could put on a hayride type show for visitors from there so she said okay so that began the revival in her uh, music career of, of the hayride so one thing led to another, and uh, those shows grew, and so uh, we acquired the trademark, and uh, so from that uh, event, I think the Cradle of the Stars had a lot to do with her resurrection of participation in the Louisiana Hayride. You and Margaret, you and Maggie became sort of this um, single figure in town. I would see y'all together, and you were always out beating the drum for the hayride, not just as a cultural legacy of North Louisiana and the region, but an economic engine for the area, all the possibilities. What what did y'all want to see achieved with the bringing back of the Louisiana hayride? It's her vision. I was along for the ride and do what, what I could to help, but uh, she was by far the visionary, the encourager, the cheerleader, and the doer. And her vision was it that Shreveport had a jewel in the making, in the rough, and that it needed to be revised, modernized. You can't bring back the old, but you can build on it. So that the history of the hayride was something that you could be an economic engine to drive development around the auditorium. And from that vision, she uh, formed a group called FAME, which was going to develop the Ledbetter Heights district into a music and a, a economic uh, landmark. So unfortunately that did not work out, but it wasn't for her lack of effort and the determination. That's right. What was it like for you to see her go through this second phase of her career? First of all, she was my favorite singer, period. And I've said that many times before we were even married. So uh, I was uh, privileged to work beside her and to see her enthusiasm and courage and determination in every project that she took on. I had some misgivings about them, but she never did. We need people like that. Absolutely. We need people to say, you know what? It might fail, but who cares? Right. If you don't try, <laughs> you'll never succeed. That's right. <laughs> and that's pretty much her, her uh, outlook on life. I think it takes crazy people to move things forward, that's to right. say, you yeah. know what? It looks like it's not doable. Let's do it. And that was a trouble that 
unfortunately, uh, in the FAME project, some people thought it was too visionary, too big of a step to take, uh, too much to swallow, but she did not think so, and uh, it wasn't for lack of trying. Well, I admire her a great deal because I think when she started her career, women were not seen as leaders in that field at all. They were probably seen a little bit as um, a novelty, right? Particularly in that line of work because uh, girl singers were just to sing. They were not <laughs> supposed to make waves. They were not supposed to produce records. They were not supposed to, to lead the, the band. But her and Myra, and Myra was just as determined as she was. And they were not going to go quietly into the night. So uh, in, in, in Nashville and, and all of those places, uh, they made a mark in a man's world. They brought to uh, Nashville the same enthusiasm and direction and uh, talent that they were, had in Shreveport. Listening to the recent Bear Family Records Louisiana Hayride box yeah, set, right. which is tremendous. And if you can check it out from the library, if you can get your hands on it, listen, it is, it is wonderful. And um, I listened to it start to finish, and, and just about every woman who's introduced on that show is introduced on the basis of how cute she is. Yes, yeah, right. so pretty. Yeah. yeah. Look how she's dressed up tonight. She's dressed up yeah, like a yeah, little cowboy. Right, yeah. They never do that for yeah. the men. <laughs> and, and if you heard, Margaret had, I think, four songs that were, uh, the recording survived, but Myra's playing the lead guitar, and you had a, I think Byer played not only lead guitar, but the blues guitar. And if you listen to those cuts, you can tell they were not cut in Nashville. So she is the only woman that ever played the electric guitar, period, let alone the lead guitar. So they were breaking ground here in Shreveport as well as Nashville. So I think that's a, a point to, to be brought out of her competition or success and able to uh, compete in the man's world, uh, so to speak. Uh, when you two were you two were able to see that project come to fruition before she passed, which when I hold it in my hands, yeah. we're looking at it right now as we record this. I got it on the table in front of me. This is the first thing I feel like that has been done, and I I haven't read everything, I haven't heard everything that really does the subject justice. It's so good. Well, How it, it took it took uh, uh, Martin Hawkins that uh, did the um, lead story uh, on it, and uh, he's from England. In fact, she. She met Martin in Nashville when she was working for Shelby Singleton. He was doing a, a, a story on uh, Sun Records. So we knew he was, he was top quality. Uh, the massive material that he had to go through to figure out exactly what to include was a task to be reckoned with. It took a couple of years. He wanted to pay homage and tribute to not only the stars, but some of the other artists that were not well known, but, but were part of the Hayride, and they contributed a lot to the success of that show. So he set about to make sure that he tried to give them due recognition of the effort that they put forth to make that event a success, and I think he did a good job on it. I believe the real, the best part of the whole thing is that I think Elvis Presley, his presence on the Hayride has in a way overshadowed so much else yeah. that happened. And and in the in this wonderful comprehensive Louisiana Hayride box set, it hey, Elvis is not exactly a footnote, but he's not the main attraction. That's right, and, and uh, that was not by accident. Uh, Martin 
wanted to give him, of course, yeah. <laughs> significant recognition, but he didn't want him to be, to overwhelm the other parts of the staff that contributed to it. And uh, I don't think Elvis would have wanted it that way. I think he was, uh, uh, would have uh, liked the, the people that uh, backed him up, the, the, the artists that came on before him and after him to have due, due recognition. Great change in music occurred significantly at the Hayride because up until that time, you know, you had the big bands, you had uh, uh, folk music and all, but Elvis and came up on the scene and uh, the rest is history. So everybody wanted to start imitating Elvis and uh, Hayride was no different. Right here in Shreveport, you had the, a, a good uh, case history of how that event happened and uh, was a part of it right here in town. So it was uh, not only a, uh, a show, but it was a part of the turning point in the history of American music. I wanted to ask, Mr. Warwick, you, you went to the Hayride show. You went to a couple of shows yeah. at some point. Can you tell me, start to finish, what that was like? You'd walk up to the municipal and then what? Well, it was, it was very unstructured that, you know, people would come up to the, to the stage and hand requests to Frank and them, you know, and uh, take pictures and all. So it was uh, uh, a, uh, nothing like the mega shows now where you sit in the football stadium and, you know, have to have binoculars just to see the, the stage. So it was a more intimate surroundings. And the Municipal Auditorium is big enough but small enough that you can do that, and the acoustics are so great that you didn't have to have a bank of, of, of speakers and, right. and technology to, to be heard. So I think the friendliness and the intimacy that uh, existed at that time was uh, something that uh, is now missing in uh, these big structured shows that everybody's dancing and swinging on trapeze artists, and, you know, so that it's a show more of a performance than it a is spectacle. Uh, yeah, it's a spectacle, exactly right. Yeah, And back then it was there for the music, you know, and so it was a different time, a different era. But I've always wanted to ask someone this, and you don't have to answer it if you don't want to. <laughs> and this will be my last question, yeah. but the more I read about the Hayride, the more I think it kind of sounds like Elvis, and I'm just going to say it, yeah. but it kind of sounds like Elvis kind of ruined it. I listened to the whole box set, and you can hear after he leaves, you can hear the audience and the performers change in a way that doesn't seem to work as well as before he was there. You know, that point was brought out in that uh, DVD, uh, The Cradle of the Stars. Elvis did change. There was no getting around it because everything changed. Not only did it change the hayride, but it changed the world. So that the impact of Elvis, you had... A different crowd that started coming in. You had the younger crowd. That's inevitable in any society. The music's going to change and the crowd's going to change, but the younger people coming in that support it. So uh, it did change. And uh, I think the evolution at that time did have an impact. It had an impact on the Opry. Elvis had to contribute to that, but so did other, other things. The Beatles didn't help any. So <laughs> times change, you know. Uh, and nothing you can do about it but try to uh, participate if you can. And if not, find something else. What's funny to me is that you often can't pinpoint the moment when times change. But I feel like in that recording of Elvis on stage at the Hayride on October 16, 1954, yeah. 
you can actually hear American culture change in that moment. That was a defining point in the music of, uh, and, and the, not only the music, but the culture, the culture of, uh, of people changed. Uh, it had a, a bigger impact on society as a whole. The star. You the defining point in the, in the point of, uh, yes. of, of, of history. So, sort of the birth of celebrity culture in a way. Yeah. I mean, that, that broadcast range that the Hayrod had was just too big to ignore. Yeah. And TV was coming in at that time. So it was all a um, multitude of things uh, were coming about that uh, were hard to digest uh, in a business sense. Well, I don't know. It's a it's a weird thing to say to, to someone, but I just want to say uh, I don't know if, how often you hear thank you for keeping it rolling through the hard times and the good because um, the Hayride could be a footnote in history now. Uh, the Shreveport Municipal Auditorium could be a parking lot. And, oh, and man. Yeah, they need a parking lot down there, don't they? <laughs> Because of the crowds. And, well, uh, you and Maggie <laughs> kept that from happening for mm-hmm. decades. Uh, you know, you guys just pushed it and pushed it, and you didn't let it get torn down. And I thank you so much, uh, and I thank her. Uh, you know, uh, and I, I know that you two will see one another again soon. You bet. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was Allison Warwick, recorded at Cohab in downtown Shreveport in November of 2019. Sarah and I would like to thank Louisiana Public Broadcasting for their support of this series. One of our goals in taking on this topic was to have a different kind of conversation about the Louisiana Hayride. These five episodes have largely been about listening to folks who have unique perspectives on this chapter of local history, and it's been truly enlightening. I'm really excited that we actually have a bonus episode for you guys featuring the phenomenal AJ Haynes of the Serotones, who are just like dominating music right now. Um, AJ also produced our show music. I hope you've been enjoying it as much as we have. And we sat down and just had a really candid conversation about the Louisiana Hayride and the future of music in Shreveport and beyond. If you're not already subscribed to the podcast, please do so you don't miss that conversation with AJ. And if you're feeling really, really benevolent, take a few minutes out of your day and leave us a review. Reviews of the podcast help new listeners discover all y'all. It helps so much more than you could possibly know. And don't forget to stop by our Facebook page and leave a comment with your thoughts about the Louisiana Hayride's past, present, and future. If this series gets you thinking, which we hope it does, please share those thoughts. We want to hear them. Once again, we'd like to thank our partners for this series, Louisiana Public Broadcasting, as well as our sponsors at Maryland's Place, Maccentric, and Rhino Coffee. Thank you to AJ Haynes for our Slim Whitman-inspired theme music and Alexander Holman for mixing those lovely tunes. AJ Haynes' participation is courtesy of New West Records. Thanks for listening, y'all. This has been fun. Thanks. Yeehaw! (laughs) 